On this week's episode of the Limehouse podcast, we speak to Gina Miller. And to me, that would have been the most sensible thing to do is to get the best minds and a cohort of legal experts, negotiation experts, you know, people from the civil service as well, involve them and get a team that went over. So wherever you are, please enjoy this episode of the Limehouse podcast, your liberal speakeasy. And if you feel like sharing, then please do. Facebook, SoundCloud, or you can even rate us on iTunes. So many thanks and enjoy the show. Yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clay and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Right, so welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. Yeah. Yesterday was a, a funny old day. One minute I'm in central London, swanky office, chatting with Gina. The next I'm literally knee deep in weeds, then back home to change to meet with Our Future, Our Choice and Remain an Owl for an in-depth chat about their individual projects. The life of a podcasting political gardener, eh? Weeds and politics. I mean, that genuinely sounds like an autobiography, or perhaps in this case, a toilet book. But, but anyway, so yeah, look, I'm, I found Gina to be a warm, incredibly engaging person. She's so friendly and open to the conversation we had. We touched on all the usual suspects, you know, Brexit, sovereignty, and her role in the uh, current political climate. We spoke about the abuse and threat she faces, which frankly, some might take for granted, but when you're face to face with somebody that is threatened on a very real level, you can't help but be affected by that. Um, yeah, you know, I, th- I think she's a wonderfully brave woman that is simply doing whatever somebody that loves law and her country would do, and that's stand up for what she uh, what she believes in. And I don't think that that should be met by very scary and misguided threats. I think tolerance is a word that some segments of British and world society have decided to abandon in favour of a more shouty, nasty and intolerant anti-reason way of life. I have to say that this is, it's it's not just the, the, it's not the Great Britain I grew up in. And when I see and hear some of these views being vocalised, it sends a chill down my spine Gina, genuinely, she, sh- she, sh- she shouldn't be feared or hated. She should be admired and used by parents and people from all walks of life, of, of life as a shining example of what this human race can achieve and be truly proud of. Genuinely. Like, who isn't... Who wouldn't be proud of Gina Miller? And I know, I know, I know you'll love this chat because she's in fine form and I know she, she really enjoyed the sh- being, being on the show. But yeah, look, next week, 
We've got Femi and Will from Our Future, Our Choice and Andy from Remainer Now. If you haven't already checked out uh, their uh, their individual campaigns, then I suggest you do. It's pretty cool. Um, both groups are talking with people that have had doubts over their decisions to vote leave and have now taken in the cold, hard facts and, and changed their minds. They've listened to an inner voice, I suppose. But it's, it's not about who's right or wrong. It's about being human and listening to one another. And these two groups are doing the it's really important and kind work. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to bringing that chat, that conversation to you. And I know you'll really enjoy it. But yeah, look, enjoy this chat with Gina. I'll uh, I'll see you next week. And of course, as always, if you feel like telling a friend about the show, it doesn't just help. It fills my heart with hope. OK, so there you go. If you feel like sharing, then please do so. But yeah, any, anyway, look, thanks. Thanks again. And, and enjoy this conversation. I'll, and I'll, I'll see you soon. Nice one. Bye. I mean, it's hard to know where to start, really, because you've been involved right from the get-go, Brexit and what have you. And I've, I've been involved and, even sort of 10, 12 years before that. Yeah. Because I've been a transparency campaigner for a long time. Yeah. And my three areas have been um, world of pension investments, the world of charities, but also looking at um, democracy and the use of powers. So I've actually been keeping my eye on several governments, and they've all been eroding the the sort of the barriers between the ele- the um, executive and parliament. Yeah. You know, and they've they've all been stepping over the line for quite some years. So it's not, it didn't happen overnight. Well, you see, this is the impression that um, you get. Well, you know, when when you first came on the scene. Yes, exactly. Who the hell is this woman? Yes, How I know. Dare she actually, the, it's quite interesting because yeah. I have a team who followed me through the case and everything, and then afterwards. And there is a documentary coming out in September called Who is Gina Miller? Because it's one of the things they wanted to do because yeah. nobody realises how, A, how disliked I am in so many sectors. So this is nothing new. You know, I've got a nickname in the city of the Black Widow Spider. I mean, it took a lot to earn that um, really? because apparently on my own, I could bring down the whole, the whole um, world of investments and pensions okay. um, because I was asking for increased transparency on really basic consumer rights like fees and products and yeah. labels on products and yeah. uh, mis-selling. And so we know what we're getting ourselves yeah, yeah. into when we're buying things. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, how much are you really paying and how much? Are, well, what are you actually buying? There's a pretty simple consumer rights. And but, yet, I mean, you've got to be careful there because that's, you know, <laughs> going to ruffle a lot of feathers. No, right? exactly. Yeah. So I have ruffled lots and lots of feathers. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it, I even got asked this the other night, oh, but Gina, your work is always pushing water up the hill. And I said, no, not only did I get it up the hill, but I got it in the bucket because I got text into three EU directives mm. that come in this year that are actually going to change in the city and the city is horrified um, so you know I'm used to being disliked and the charity sector I've been calling for more safeguarding and governance and scrutiny and financial yeah. uh, transparency and actually that has been even more aggressive the backlash to it from the charity sector has been more aggressive than that from the city which is really interesting because yeah. this sector of angels actually have a lot to protect and I you know you sort of since since 2008-2009 I've, I've been talking about lack of safeguarding I've been involved in I funded some of the work well not some of the work quite a lot of the work that Bernardo's and the others did with the Rotherham with Rotherham okay, um, yeah, yeah. exposing kids company and I was involved in all, and people just didn't want to listen because this idea that it's a sector of angels so you must be the bad evil person if you're trying to shine a light on it yeah. how can you bring it all to question because it, is, it has become, I mean, there are amazingly good charities, 
But then there are others, because it's such a low entry, barriers to entry, have just basically made business out of charities and they just earn a lot of money for themselves. And, you know, but you try and explain that. And, yeah, so I'm... I've been used to not making friends. I suppose a public <laughs> perception as well is if you start trying to tackle charities and transparency within them, people don't want to know that. People, not necessarily they don't want to know it, they just want to believe in their heart of hearts. That but, but this is the thing, because I think where you have to realise is that, um, and, and this is the, the, the message I try and take with all my work, including what I'm doing uh, you know, on, on the stage with um, the Brexit debate and how it's progressing, is that it's not wrong to ask questions. It actually makes you, it makes the end outcome better. So it's not about knocking down the status quo so there is nothing there. It's improving it and evolving it in a way that it's, there you have better outcomes for the people and for consumers. That's actually what challenging does is it increases the, out, the quality of the outcome. No, I completely and, agree. And, and that's something that I keep banging on to people to realise that it's not, and also... This whole idea that people have been had is a really difficult thing because I've had, you know, in the world of investments, I've seen it. Are people going to say, actually, they've been missold the product? or Because you're basically saying to them, you've been had, you were a bit stupid. Actually, it's not the people who were stupid or have been had. The responsibility lies with the people selling it. And that's my point is that people in positions of power wherever they are in life, have not behaved responsibly. In fact, they behave with dishonesty and lack of integrity, and they do not tell the people the truth. And that is, again, a commonality in all the work I've done that sort of is missed, that uh, that is my agenda, my agenda. Is is that what got you into... Brexit. Is that you fundamentally I, saw that? As a, yes, because I was on the, uh, the the trail in the October before. So in the October before the referendum, there was a concerted effort to go and start all the debates around the country, the Remain team and the Leave teams, and you know on panels in the media, whatever. So I got involved. I got approached as because there were very few business voices who wanted to step forward yeah. because it was so toxic, and also from a corporate point of view, they couldn't do it. Um, and then there were also very few women and very few somebody from ethnic minorities. So I ticked lots of boxes on the Remain team to go out on the road. I also was one of the few people who would leave London and actually travel around because a lot of the other people that they approached just wanted to do debates in London. Okay, um, cosy, cosy. Cosy, yeah. nice, a bit comfortable. You know, I don't want to work too hard on this. You want to know how that but... feels. I haven't <laughs> left London yet to talk to anybody about this. So, you know. so, but I did. So I went to a lot a lot around the country and I, yeah. I wanted to go to the areas that lots of people, you know, fear to tread almost. And what I was horrified about as I was going around the country and those months of debates, by February time, I realised that nobody had a clue what they would do if the vote was for leave. And I was convinced by the February before that we were going to be leaving. And I kept saying, so what's the plan? Not just to Remainers, but to leavers. And nobody would answer my question. In fact, they'd say, Gina, you don't understand the British people. They don't take risks. These are some of the comments that I got back. People in Britain stand in queues. We don't rock the boat. People complain a lot, but then when it comes to vote, they won't, you know. It was just arrogance about it. And so I knew on the day of the vote that nobody had a plan or even considered what the plan might be. And so I was just horrified. I thought, whoa, what do we do now? What do we do now? Then Cameron dropped the, um, the, the, the baton and said, right, you guys, you, you sort out the mess. Um, wow, yeah. 
And then the whole leadership happened and I could just see we were going to get more and more problems because I could see that politically, and I've always understood this and I, ne- and I still understand this, is that politically the, pol- the parties are in a difficult, very difficult position because dem- uh, from a dem- democracy point of view, they have to follow the will of the people and I think it is actually absolutely de- um, democratic they do. But at the same time, how are they going to fulfill this mandate because they oversold it? So they sold the pup and how do they actually now deliver it? And they're in a really, really difficult place because they can't deliver Well, they're down that terrible anything. cul-de-sac, aren't Well, they? exactly. Their backs are, not only are they down the cul-de-sac, but their backs are against the wall. So mm. what do they do? And I thought they would start being quite um, innovative and creative. And I thought they'd say, well, actually, this is an opportunity to push the button on reform and this is what we're going to ask for even consider different sort of membership you know associated membership because of what's happening in France what's happening in Germany I thought my gosh you know I'm an entrepreneur you could actually make something out of this now you could be really creative and nothing happened and nothing happened and where we are now is we've got six months because it's not till March next year because of the legal requirements for what's called ratification so yeah. 36 parliaments are going to have to vote on the deal, and, the, and including our parliament, so that's 37, between October and March next year. So there's a lot of legal work to be done to make the deal to make the deal legal, whatever that deal is. So really, we have six months, six or seven months. And how do you feel about the people that are leading that, those negotiations, that legal passage? How do you feel about that? Well, they don't understand the legal passage. And actually, they, there's so many mistakes they've made along the way. But I think the first fundamental is, um, mistake they made is to not make the negotiations a cross-party team. Because actually, it's not the Conservative Party who's leading Brexit. The vote was the country. Yeah. It's all parties. And the all-party, cross-party uh, select committee um, infrastructure is now uh, embedded in our democratic system, in our parliamentary system. And to me, that would have been the most sensible thing to do, yeah. is to get the best minds and a cohort of legal experts, negotiation experts, you know, people from the civil servants as well, involve them, and get a team that went over. Instead, what we ended up with is, a, is, a t- is politicians who have no idea what they're doing, and they don't actually understand the EU, and it, they don't understand the functioning of the EU, and thirdly, they don't understand the legal restraints of what the EU is doing. Yeah. Because there are so many fundamental things that are not understood. The EU is not just negotiating with the UK because whatever they grant us, they'd have to offer, if, for example, it's this cake and eat it or, you know, the output, we can have all these opt-ins, they're going to have to offer that to other member states. Other member states might want that. Yeah. If we also then get what's called most favoured nation status, it's because we've got all these cake and eat it type scenarios, they might have to offer that to every single WTO member as well. So that's 164 countries they're going to have to offer those on or wherever we get our cherry picking. Yeah. So the EU is negotiating with the rest of the world, not just the UK. Yeah. And that's a really narrowing choice for them because they can't go outside of what is in the treaty of the functioning of the EU. Their hands, you know, everyone thinks the UK's hands are tied. Actually, the EU's hands are tied in all of this. Yeah. It's really complicated. And what about sort of people like Jacob Rees-Mogg that are leading the line on this Brexit dividend? I think that, obviously, Philip Hammond gave the spring um, 
What do you call it? Like the spring, not budget, but analysis. No, no, the spring the, analysis. Yeah. The spring, it, the spring analysis is really interesting because it doesn't actually ever mention Brexit or leaving or that. It's as though it's not there. It is, it's a, the spring budget is based on where we are now and where we go in the status quo. Mm. It does not factor in or scenario model in any way us leaving in any of the rainbows of uh, Brexit you could have soft, hard, slow, whatever it doesn't factor in any of that so it's the most it's the strangest budget it doesn't factor in any of that yeah I mean I suppose my my concern is that people are really on the leave side are trying to find absolutely any silver lining in this if you're being being sort of like an objective person where do you think the silver lining is, if there is any, in Brexit? There was, I think there could have been, um, and a group of consultants and I actually did this, because whilst the EU is united on Brexit, behind or beyond Brexit, there is division on quite a lot of issues. Um, and member states, you know, there's a north-south divide, there, um, there's an inner-outer circle divide, um, there are different attitudes on it, migration. They have problems domestically with their own people when it looks it comes to the rise of the far right populism. All these issues yeah. are happening and are troubling all the member states. So we thought there was an opportunity to actually look at the EU and say, OK, we voted Brexit, which is basically a heart attack to you, Brexit, to, sorry, to you, the EU. And the way to cure it is to reform. So look at an EU progressive reform agenda. And we thought the way of doing that was actually designing a third pillar to say that tiered membership is something that should be an offer where people could have more sovereignty over immigration, over money, and possibly over legislation. So we have more say, where we can say, well, this bit of legislation or directive would actually disproportionately affect our population and our country and our economy. So look at some reforms. There are probably about 10 or 15. And actually, Macron has listed them. Mm. Merkel actually told um, Cameron, when you go back to the people and you do this referendum, talk about Remain in Reform. That was actually her advice to him that he did not follow. So the appetite for it is there. And that would have been the silver lining. We could have been at the head of reforming and saving the EU. Yeah, but they're they're, they're so... I would say... Sorry, I'm recovering from a cold... They're so on the back foot. I mean, oh, no, they, no, 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 we've run out of time yeah. for this option now. I mean, so that was, the, that was the silver lining. It would have been a huge silver lining at the beginning of us voting to leave. Yeah. Um, where we are now, I don't think there's particularly any silver linings that I can see because the restrictions legally and from a, a time point of view is I think we'll be offered the Canada deal with uh, no frills attached which means that we lose services, which is 80% of our economy, but it's also 80% of our jobs. People forget, you know, this thing, 80% of economy is fine, but it's actually 80% of jobs as well. So that is a massive hit for us, if that's the, the deal we get, because from Mrs. May's speech, she's still in fantasy land. It's, we're not good. That was a cake and eat it. Um, oh, yeah. At least it was oh. good that it at least said a bit more realism of what we can't get, but it's still nowhere there. Um, And then we haven't even tackled Ireland at all. So we'll have to see what happens from that point of view. The other silver linings, though, I think are domestic. I think whichever way Brexit ends up, whatever happens, there will be ongoing discussions and debates about um, 
powers leaving um, Westminster, about more devolved powers in terms of policies and finances. I think the localism issue will be something that has been long needed and will happen. So I think that's a really good silver lining. I think the second one is that how many more people are involved in politics and discussing debate and young people? I think it's really exciting because you could argue we've got to where we've got to because we've all been a bit lazy. We haven't talked about politics. We've not been engaged. We think it's this thing that happens in this way off land called Westminster. And actually politics equate to policies and policies affect every part of your life to the water you drink, when your garbage is taken out, you know, what your children study at school, what benefits you get, what taxes you pay. That's what politics is all about. So that's really exciting to me. Well, yeah, I mean, three and a half million people registered to vote, didn't they? I think it's really exciting that we've got more people involved. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, I think, just from a geeky point of view, my point of view and and the Constitution, I think there'll be an ongoing debate about codifying, um, writing down parts of our Constitution because none of our Constitution is written down. So those are three, I think, fantastic silver linings that will... um, happen and of course there is a fourth which is you know we have to listen to people who are hurting who were previously fairly invisible have had their say and have shouted very loudly and we can't ignore them any longer so I think that's an overall benefit that will come out of this as well yeah I mean also I suppose the progressive centre ground is opening up I mean in terms of open Britain better Britain um, and obviously, our future, our choice. Uh, there, there are probably actually about forty organisations. There I'm, are so many. I call right. them. I call them the rainbow of Remain because yeah, okay. some of them want um, a soft Brexit. Some are pushing for customs union. Some are pushing for complete stop Brexit. But there is this sort of rainbow of different um, attitudes. And with, but, with that rainbow, is there a danger that you know it is rainbow, i.e., it's it's momentary and that there's too many of them and it just needs to be consolidated it does need to be consolidated and i think um the the leave side have been very consolidated and very strategic in the way and they're less organizations and they have um coalesced around leading voices two or three leading voices that hasn't happened on the remain side on the rainbow of remain however it is happening there was an announcement just uh, two days ago that four or five of these organizations Organizations are now going to be in Millbank Tower, co- co-located. Um, I think they are the, the bigger organizations, but then they also filter down to the more grassroots ones. So that's a massive announcement and positive. It was only covered in one media outlet, um, which is a real shame. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is there is a problem with the media. You know, the, the people who are trying to have... I'm trying to have a very pragmatic process, independent, realistic attitude to this. You know, I said the day after the um, referendum vote that we're all leavers now. Yeah. And we were, we are all leavers now, but it's what sort of leave. Because I think the will of the people started this process. And it is my 100% view that the will of the people should decide where it goes in the future. So a people's vote for the future of, of the country is what I'm advocating at the moment. But in the meantime... We should be getting people's voices on the media who are trying to be more pragmatic in this. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to get on the media. There is... I don't understand what's happening, but the debate has closed down. I mean, it's it's like Ken Clark said, you know, after... Actually, it wasn't Ken Clark. It was Ian Hislop. I remember him saying after... Does that mean that when, uh, for example, the Conservatives won the general election the day after... 
Labour then pack up their bags and leave Parliament because they've lost. You don't. You don't stop. Um, you don't stop rehearsing your arguments or putting your case forwards. Um, what you do is try and do it along the lines of the other arguments. I mean, that's what that's what keeps our country healthy. That's what keeps our democracy healthy. It's what keeps our society healthy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I do want to talk about media for a bit, but um, the BBC, for example, I, I, you know, who doesn't love the BBC? Fantastic, great. I stopped listening to the Today program. I, I think the Today program has lost all sense of, uh, of proportionality. Yeah, I mean, the word balance. What does the word balance mean to you? I in, think the in terms word of BBC. I think the word balance is when well there are different types of balance. When it comes to reporting the news, I think you have to treat try and be as non-partisan as possible. And when you're reporting data, you can't put a spin on it. So it's got to be reporting the data and the findings. And that's not happening on the data at the moment. There's all there's a tends to be a spin. But I also think that you have to give both sides of a debate, or even if it's not two sides, it could be three or four sides, but you have to get as many voices in as possible to have a reasoned debate um, and something where you are very, if you like, prismatic in your approach that you're giving all sides time and space and airtime in particular. And I don't see that happening. But the problem is, for me anyway, is that they kind of have, you have an absolutely ridiculous topic that has to then be balanced out. It, it, it doesn't really make any sense. It's like having a debate about three hundred and fifty million pounds for the NHS. They're, why? Why do we need to have that conversation when it shouldn't even be in the public sphere? In, in no, the, I think one anywhere? of the things they're doing is that um, they're harking back to yesterday's debates, and that's not helpful. Mm. Actually, that creates more division in the country, and this is a real, real problem at the moment. Is this question of are the media? precipitating or continuing the divisions that are happening and they are ha- deepening all the time. I know that, not just because of reports, but because of letters, emails, people, you know, I've had thousands and thousands now of people telling me how they're being treated and what's happening to them in their everyday lives in, in all parts of Britain and things have changed. Yeah. Um, and there is division and there is now more openly, um, more open discrimination in lots of different ways. And the media keep revisiting those old debates. It's just dividing that. And I think yeah. they're not helping. They're yeah. not helping the country did mend you, at all. Did you see the Panorama and um, Nick Robinson uh, special the other day where he went, I can't remember exactly where he went, but he took pictures with him of um, NHS workers, uh, fruit pickers, uh, cafe workers, etc. And uh, pointed out, to, did a vox pop on the streets with people mm-hmm. and said... Who who do you think should not be let into this country? And he named all these sort of variety of jobs. And they said, no, they should stay in. No, they should stay in. Well, sorry, who do you want to stay away then? Who do you you think that comes into this country should not be allowed in? And they couldn't categorically say. And it wasn't just one or two. He interviewed a lot of people. And he just seemed to put an absolute dagger through the heart of the whole immigration debate. The immigration debate is one that I I remember in particular. I went to Minehead, which was very aggressively leave. Um, and I Teresa's was, spot. Right? And I was... N- not Maidenhead, Minehead. Oh, the very, Minehead, very, very so poor that's where, area. Um, that's where status quo. Yeah, uh, so I, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but I... I went there and it was a, a hall of very aggressive men, particularly, you know, English, sort of, over whatever it is, men. And Ooh, I yeah. deliberately wanted, and it was all about immigration and I was being shouted out, we don't want any of you immigrants, and, you know, lots of very derogatively um, uh, vicious name calling. 
And I've learned, I've gone through a great uh, learning process in all of this, as I've learned that I'm actually quite capable of staying calm uh, in all sorts of situations. But I sort of said, do you mind? There was one particular gentleman who's really being aggressive towards me. And I said, can I just ask a question? When we leave the EU, or we vote, because this was before the referendum, if we leave the EU, you do know that only EU immigrants are going to possibly stop coming, that the bigger number, which is the rest of the world, will still be able to come. And because those jobs will need to be done, the dirty jobs that nobody really wants to do, there'll probably be more people who look like me. Yeah. And my colour skin. Yeah. And he was furious. He went, no, all of you immigrants are going to stop coming. You know, Brexit is about cleansing Britain. And he used those words. And I was so shocked. And it was this idea that all immigrants were going to stop coming because it was going to be Britain for British. But isn't that what it's all about? I and mean, I David Lammy, sorry, find Karen. it extraordinary because yeah. I've never found an answer of what that means. Yeah, well, no one, no one can. And if you do have an answer for it, it's just called racism. I mean, it's just David Lammy calls it out, you know, on a time and time again. And I, I saw him make a fantastic speech in uh, Parliament Square about that. You know, let's call Brexit what it is. To a degree, not through and through. I think that. Well, well, I think people. I think the thing is though that you need to get beyond this because the, you know there are lots of ways of unpacking Brexit and there's lots of discussions to be had about Britain after whatever happens this year. Because as I said, it'll be decided by October this year, one way or the other. Um, I think the ongoing questions have to be about what's happening in in our wider society and why is there this culture of blame. But for me personally, as a woman of colour, I mean. The things I get told, I should be I should be um, grateful for being here and shut up. I have no right to speak. My I'm I'm only good for being a prostitute or wearing or bearing children or you know I shouldn't. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. Is this social media? I can't. No, no, no. It's now. This is the thing again. It's a myth. I don't just get stuff on social media. The um, you know, if I can't went to prison for putting up a bounty for £5,000 to have me run over. Um, and he got, it's the first time someone of that sort of, and he put it on Facebook. What? I don't um, know about this. Yeah, you know, Vice Count um, St. Davis. So it's the first time, so I've made precedent there that nobody's ever actually gone to prison before for that. But he, so he put a bounty out wow. for, for, for me to be killed. Um, and then the, the police have also issued eight what's called cease and desist letters, which are like red cards before they, they, they charge you. Um, and those were all around the country, and they came, they were all via calls or letters. So it's not social media. I have got, I mean, I get, even two weeks ago, there's the last time I got one, you know, a, a package comes to, to the office here, and we have, the really sad thing is, it's become normalised, and we treat it like an everyday part of our of our lives now. So we have evidence bags and, and gloves. So my team know that when it's something suspicious, they put it in the evidence, put gloves on, put it in the evidence bag, and call 999. Um, we've never actually had any attacks on white powder. I've had lots of white powder, but the terrorism team have actually given us a workshop. There is actually, no, it's never been found in, about one case in America. That's it. It's just to create fear in you. But the two weeks ago was an envelope that shook. So we sort of thought, oh my gosh, what's in there? We, we suspect that actually the report hasn't come back, but there are now crystals that we can send in the post that when it's exposed to the air, they can burn your hands right. or they can burn your right, whatever. There's so many things. And I get sent these things on a weekly basis, I mean, even almost a daily basis. How is that, how is that on you men- mentally? Well, this is the thing. Unfortunately, I've now considered it sort of normal. I, I, it's almost, it's a good day when I don't get any. 
it's a good day when I don't get a death threat or my children aren't, you know, they're going just, to be killed in front of me or I don't whatever. Know how you can, I mean, for me personally, I'm just trying to think how I deal with my own anxieties in life, and, and they're all necessarily, they're all made up in my head, you know. Uh, all the terrible things that could happen to me and then none of them happen but with yourself you know you, you are facing but uh, yeah so so we, we we are looked after by a special team you know I, I have special arms around the house all those things but I, it's it's it created a huge change in me because it's made me even more passionate than I was before and more high energy because I think this is not the Britain I wanted me or my children or other people to live in. And these voices are not going to trump my own. And it won't be for nothing. And it won't be for nothing. I'm absolutely... They, they, people don't realise by carrying on. I almost, in a funny way, they can carry on because it gives me the energy. There is absolutely no way I'm going to let them win. So mm. I'm going to just... They, they're actually empowering me more than they can possibly imagine. Well, I suppose you're taking their energy and, and, and pushing it... You know, it's like a martial arts. Yes. Know? No, no, no. Yeah. So I'm a great Bruce Lee fan. Oh, there we go. So right. I... So what yeah. Bruce Lee said was, you take in the, uh, the, the yeah. power and then you redirect it. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm afraid yeah. I'm a mad Bruce yeah. Lee fan. How, how long do you think you can keep that up for? Because I... Well, I am... Um, I'm not... I am a very practical person. My husband and I and my family have had discussions about there will be if it gets to a point where we the children can't live a life that is that is fair on them and more of a normal life. We would I have said this we would consider leaving, but that is not yet. Um, and I'm going to fight first. Yeah. Um, I have got an incredible team and they are brilliant. And you know if I go out of London, we have to tell the local team. So it it, it it's manageable at the moment. Mm. But I, mean, I can't predict the future. Yeah, from 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 like what I've gathered from you, your your energy. I mean, it, you know, it, wow, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I I would be personally, but you know, it's like you said, you know, it, it's energy that you're using and you're managing to keep on top of it. But I did want to ask um, my wife has a question for you. <laughs> um, it, it was based around Oprah Winfrey, and she made okay. a speech about the um, how the press have been, how, how, how fantastic they've been in in, in America in particular mm. in safeguarding um, rights, I suppose, and yes. exposing the truth. Yes, but um, <clears throat> in the UK, it doesn't seem to be that 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 case at all. I mean, if you were to stand up and speak about the British press at all, it would be sort of like. Where would you go? Would I remember having a conversation years ago around human rights because I've done a lot of work on modern day slavery and social justice and human rights and things. And I was having a conversation with Sherry Blair and I asked her what it was like being um, targeted by the British press. And she said an interesting thing. She said whenever she and Tony went abroad, the wives would always say to her, I'm so sorry of what you've got to put up with in the British press because we don't get it from our press. So as the first lady, you know, not just the first lady, but you know, the equivalent of that in the UK, she was targeted. And, and the, that was a common comment that she was said yeah. that was told to her. And I, that, I think that's really interesting that the way our, our press treat people, because you could argue the reason we don't have great politicians or people who will, with great integrity and entering politics, and I think we do have a real gap with real, you know, people, real statesmen and women, mm. is because... Who wants to be vilified and every part of your life ransacked? I mean, I've had it done. And why would you put yourself out there to be targeted by the press in such yeah, a manner? Enemies of the people. And, I mean, the, the whole... I mean, yeah. enemies of the people is actually a phrase that was used in the Stalinist trials in the 1930s. What are the press doing? Yeah. And... Is it because we they're owned by a small number of extremely wealthy 
um, quite illiberal <laughs> men pretty much. who have yeah. their own agenda and are just using the media that they own as propaganda tools to, to further their own aims, which is politically their aims are to create a Britain that is illiberal and where there is low regulations and low safeguards for consumers and low quality food can be available. And basically the rich can buy what they can afford and the poor will just have to make do with everything else. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is their agenda. Yeah. And that's why our press in this country is not to your wife. It's the owner's. And unfortunately, when it comes to social media, it is the fact that we have companies who are not taking responsibility because everyone makes the social media debate, I think, too complicated. Mm. My view is very simple. It's the message, not the medium. If And they are publishers. If they're allowing on their platforms messages of hate, mm. violence, um, extremism, yeah. they should be taking them down and they should be policing them and they can. They are so clever if they chose to do it. Because believe me, if Google, if there was a company in the UK set up tomorrow called Google UK, I can guarantee you Google would have lawyers and everybody, they would be spending millions on that, wouldn't they? So why are they not doing that and spending millions on actually safeguarding the platform that they publish on all these other people? You know, it's nonsense that they can't do it. They're clever. They can actually do much more than they're doing. No, I totally agree with you. I take your point there completely. But um, I, did, I did. I don't know how long you've got left. You've had roughly about half an hour. Yeah, probably about five more minutes. Or okay, so. cool. Well, that's that's perfect. Um, you've you've been support. You've been not yet yeah, supporting of the various Liberal Democrat positions yes. on, on EU um, you know, rights and citizenship, which is fantastic. But recently, that their spring conference, Vince came out. Vince Cable came out. And did, did, are you aware of his speech that he uh, basically said that um, it? The over 65s voted for in like an old imperial Britain. It was yeah, Britain of the past. Of, of, mm. Britain of the past, and and he's been lambasted for it. How much of his recent speech would you say you align yourself with? I, I I'm apolitical, and I am working with the Lib Dems on two particular things. One is that I think it's very important in the local elections on the third of May that EU citizens realise that for the three million, I think there's a million who can register and vote. And this is the time to have their voices heard because many have lived here for many, many years, 20, 30 odd years. And the way they're being treated is just inhuman as far as I'm concerned. So this is the time to have their voices heard. So I am working with the Lib Dems because I think it's really important that that's really important. Secondly, they are the only party who who have been, I mean, others are now coming on board, thank goodness, who have been saying that a people's vote is what should happen at the end of this process. So the people started the journey, the people should decide the future and where the journey ends. So I absolutely agree with that. When it comes to some of the other, I'm not a Liberal Democrat, a member of the party, and I'm not, so I didn't read the speech. Um, I've seen snippets of it. I think the age divide that's happening, not just from what Vince said there, but across the country, is not helpful. It's another division. Because actually, I speak to people of all um, age groups who have voted Leave Remain, have different reasons. Um, It's not as simple as saying that. And I also, you know, I did an event at at Cambridge Union. So lots of young people, um, and I speak to lots of schools and sixth formers. And there are lots of youngsters who want... Britain to go back to being an empire and being in charge. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it, because they're speaking through their very and well, how they've been brought up. So it's not. It, it's too much of a generalization. I think across the population, there there is a percentage of people who think the empire version two is not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, 
And um, and I know that because I speak to the Commonwealth countries who are also worried that that's what Brexit might end up with. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty scary to think about empire and what, that, if you really think about it, what it actually represented. It, it is, it, there, there is nothing good with the word empire. No. I think, you know, there is, my view is that Britain is, modern day Britain, post-war Britain, have actually been the leaders in the world in democracy, in the rule of law, in tolerance, in innovation, um, in peacemaking around the world. And those are the things we should be pushing that we retain. And that's what makes Britain great. And that's the things that we're in danger of losing. Yeah, and also poster boys like Winston Churchill, you know, he went on a journey. I mean, crying out loud, he was opposed to the suffragette movement. Yes, he did. He was. and, And then, you know, obviously he... Got us through the Second World War, and, and, then, and then went bang on about the United States of Europe. Yes, so. but I think Churchill's an interesting one because he used this phrase that you know, when when the facts change, I change my mind, which he actually never said himself. He pinched from John Maynard Keynes. It was actually yeah, yeah. it was first said by Keynes, and it's true. You know what we do opening our minds and admitting when we're right or, t- or wrong or taking on facts are actually strengths, not weaknesses. And so when you know the facts and you think the facts change, you have the right to change your yeah. mind. And that's just common sense. Yeah. And, and before, before you, we, we say goodbye, I'm, I'm chatting with um, yeah, people from Our Future, Our Choice and yes. Remain and Now uh, later today. Is that when you spoke earlier about uh, you know the positives of Brexit and seeing like you know the I don't know the the rekindling of politics? I think it's fantastic. Do you, do you are you aware of Femi's work? Of uh, oh no, I know I know them. I, I actually saw the website and they sent me their press release before it went yeah. live. And I had you can ask them. I, it wasn't. I, I had a few comments on how it could improve the website. And it looked amazing. Mm. Now um, didn't have any faces of any young people. Um, I think they're in the same. They they have to be careful. For one thing, and I'm very open in mentioning to this to them, is exactly referring back to your comment about Vince's speech. If you say that this is only about young people, they will alienate people over. I mean, I, I saw somewhere where they said everybody over 40, and I thought, hang on a minute, I'm well over 40, and, and I care about Britain. So if they fall into this um, trap of saying that only people under 25, actually, their their age group, I think, is even younger, are the only people who have a future in Britain and only care about Britain, that will discredit their movement. Because actually, it's a very important voice that they have, and it's a very important movement, and they're incredibly passionate, not just Femi. I mean, Laura is amazing. I think all four of them will. I think all those four young people are exemplary, the sort of people we need in politics in the future, but they must not fall into that trap of saying, of creating, or creating that division, that yeah. it's only under 25. I think the Lib Dems were just basically going for shock and awe and attention. Yeah, but everything that uh, yeah. uh, you know, our, our country, our future is saying is yeah. actually saying it's about the young, but, you know, it's not. It's about everyone. Yeah, no, they, they are an important voice, but all voices need to be heard. And I think if they champion pushing forward the voice of young people, which is not being heard or is being misrepresented by Labour, for example, at the moment that Labour supports got all the huge swell of young people's votes because they were supporting Labour. Actually, they were supporting Labour because they thought Labour was against Brexit. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so, well, so I mean, they have a very, very important role to play. They just must not fall down that trap yeah. or that hole of thinking that they discredit then everyone else. Yeah, so it's a shame about Jeremy Corbyn and his position on Brexit. I mean, God, you know, sometimes I think when you sat on the sofa with Nigel Farage, 
<clears throat> to a degree, you could have been sat on the sofa with Jeremy Corbyn. Oh yes, no, no, no. I think you know another thing for the for the conversation with with the younger groups because there's more than one. There's some three or four really important young organisations representing young people. One of the messages I think they very importantly have to put out there to other young people is to clarify Labour's position. And I know, for example, Femi is a, supports Labour, so you find it difficult. But it's really important to explain what Corbyn, the Corbyn equals. Uh, Benite politics. Benite politics equals the fact that they see the EU as a bastion of elitism, and actually, it's probably the last bastion of socialism. And that, and you need to correct because why? Why would you know about the seventies? Why would you know about Corbyn? Corbyn has never, since nineteen seventy three, has never voted in favour of the EU. He has always voted. He has never once voted for the EU. He has consistently gone against the whips, consistently voted against the EU. So this is somebody where he's not speaking because he has gotten on his voice and he doesn't want to say something he doesn't really believe in. So that's why he's so silent and missing from the debate on Brexit. You know, they didn't mention Brexit practically at all during the election last year. No, no, we're um, out to Keir Starmer, right? Yeah, so Keir is put up, or Emily or other people, but uh, or, or John or whatever, and, you know, what they've their stance as of today as it stands is also cake and eat it. So we've got two political parties who are not being realistic about what's actually achievable. So where, how are we going to get out of this then? I think that whatever... I think I'm very, very simple as far as I'm concerned... The government must go away and negotiate because they're the ones negotiate. They come back with the deal, whatever it is they manage to get, whatever's on offer, and then they put it to um, a debate in Parliament. And, and in that debate in Parliament, the parliamentarians have to insist that the vote goes to the people. The people have to decide the future. We can't, this cannot be up to the politicians because they're voting with one hand tied behind their backs in both parties and it's got to be a free vote and the only free vote will come from the people. A people's vote on the future of this country is what's needed. Yeah, wow, goodness. That's a pretty good place to end it. I mean, I do feel like I could... Then counter that by saying, but if you say that, then that's going against the will of the people, and that's not. No, it's not. It is the most democratic thing you could do because the will of the people started the journey. The will of the people should decide where it ends. It is the most democratic thing you could do is to put the final outcome back to the people. And either people put up or shut up because this is an argument that can go round and round. No, no, it's not. It's not because whatever is voted from, from a legal point of view, would have to be put in place, and that will be the end of it. And you're quite right. Everybody is going to have to, as you put it, put up and shut up, because whatever decide, is decided that vote, we have to get back to dealing with the domestic issues. It, while all of this debate and is going on, nobody is talking about education, NHS, infrastructure, um, what's happening to um, social care, what's happening to housing. No, there is no bandwidth for the domestic causes of Brexit, I mean, if you like. Oh my gosh, you know? nobody is, you know, yeah. all of this, we're ignoring Britain. The saddest thing about Brexit is that Britain is being ignored. We are not dealing with any of the issues that, we, that affect our everyday lives. Yeah. It's shameful. Oh, absolutely. I can, I, you know, I, I, Grenfell's a perfect example. Oh, yes, it is a perfect example. But, you know, looking at, um, there was a massive, massive um, story last week about another version of what happened, or example, what happened in in Rochdale with the grooming gang. It was much, much bigger than Rochdale. Did you see it in the news? It got a tiny bit of coverage. These things are not being... We're not getting our real stories out there. That should have been front page everywhere. It was the most despicable 
type of grooming by again Asian the word you know it could be any culture but it just happened to be in this in, in it was a terrible terrible story and it should have been front page everywhere you yeah, know I completely agree I completely agree it is it's, it's like a the black hole that's just sucking everything out we have to stop it we yeah. have to stop it we have to decide this year and then get on we have to 2018 has to be the year where we draw a line under Brexit whatever's decided we get on with it and you know what we are great written and we'll be able to get on with it and it might be tough but we'll get out of it. But we just need that permission to move on. Okay, on that note, thank, thank you, you so much for your time. Okay, <laughs> lovely to speak to you. Yeah, thanks very much. But we'll get out of it. And it might be tough, but we'll get out of it. Fast.